Get up, everybody, get off your ass. We got to do something, and we got to do it fast. Cause the people are hungry, starving, and the fuel is low. Don't wait for Jesus, he ain't coming back no more. Good morning, everybody. From Chicago, it's Michael James and Katie Hogan with another edition of Live from the Heartland, also known as Heartland at Home since the pandemic began. This is number 73 for the week of October 16th. And as usual, we like to bring you some guests who are doing good in the world. And today we have two people who are doing wonderful work, the photographer Paul Natkin and the water protector lawyer Pat Hanlon. So good morning to you, Katie, and how are you doing? I'm fine, thank you, sir. Very good to see you. Um, the good news for me this week is knowing that the committee investigating the Capitol insurrection of January 6th is planning to recommend criminal charges against Steve Bannon for defying a congressional subpoena. And that does my heart good. And that's my good thing for the week too. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, also this week, um, the Nobel Peace Prize, all, all of the Nobel Prizes were awarded this week and the Peace Prize went to two journalists, um, Maria Ressa of uh, the Philippines and Dmitry um, Muratov for their efforts to safeguard freedom of expression, which is a precondition for democracy and lasting peace. It's significant in that we're in a, such an anti or a dangerous time for <clears throat> journalists worldwide. Uh, Dimitri, of course, is the Russian journalist. Mm, let's see, what else? Here in the home state of Illinois. Yeah. Uh, by the time this show airs, we will have had our very first look at the new congressional map for Illinois. Uh, it does promise to be gerrymandered, as most states do. Uh, this time, though, in uh, favor of the dominant party of our state, the Democratic Party. It's always, it's always in favor of the Democrats in Illinois, thus far, no. knock on wood. Um, just be assured, folks, that the same gerrymandering is happening down in uh, Texas and Arizona for the Republicans. So uh, someday we're going we're gonna to get someone fair doing this stuff. And, um, and just real briefly, Katie, uh, there is a group that works on that. And how does uh, one pay attention to fair gerrymandering? Um, I think that the the all on the line OTL is a group that's working on uh, district redistricting. Um, just just Google fair maps and you'll get a whole slew of stuff. Okay. Um, good. Currently in Chicago, the 57th Chicago International Film Festival uh, began yesterday and it's going for about 10 days. Um, the exciting part of it is this film about Harold Washington called Punch 10 or Punch 9, I think, um, which was shown for the first time Thursday evening, has another screening Tuesday upcoming, and you can screen or see a lot of these films, including the Harold Washington one, uh, live stream. Just go to the 57th Chicago International Film Festival. And some follow-up in Chicago and some good news of something we've been covering is uh turning Muddy Waters' home into a city landmark. And on Thursday, I believe, this week, the city council approved that. This will protect the home, not only from demolition, but uh, <clears throat> from changing the facade and allow steps forward to turn it into 
a real home of the blues community and a museum in honor of the late great Muddy Waters. Yep, that was good news follow up. Uh, just, just to record that the battle for over uh, Mayor Lightfoot's vaccination mandate for the Chicago Police Department is now going to the courts. So there you go. Let's bring um, in our first guest, maybe, hey? I was saying stay tuned on that one. There'll be more next week. Yeah. Uh, you are listening to the Live from the Heartland show here on WLUW's 88.7. And then later on, you get it other places. Stay tuned. We're going to hear from one of our, uh, our guests, our first guest, Paul Natkin. We'll be right back after a little bit of uh, music. And it'll probably be good. When I was a young boy, at the age of five, my mother said I gonna be the greatest man alive. But now I'm a man, way past 21. I want you to believe me, baby. I have lots of fun. I'm a man. And now we welcome the photographer, Paul Natkin. Good morning to you, Paul. How are you doing? Good morning. Doing good. Good. Uh, well, we're here to talk to you a little bit about uh, your blues photography and probably a little bit more. Uh, you have an exhibit called The Wall of Blues. It's your first formal ex exhibition of your blues photography, which you've shot over the last 40 years. Um, it's going on at the Logan Center at the University of Chicago. Tell us a little bit about the exhibit and how it came to be. Uh, well, it, it actually started before the pandemic. And uh, they have a blues festival every year down there, uh, which is starting tonight for three nights. Uh, and before last year's blues festival, they asked me to put an exhibit up at the cafe at the Logan Center. And I printed everything up and framed it and got ready to go. And then the pandemic hit and I put all the print, all the frames in a, in a little room <laughs> in my house and left them there for a year. And then a couple months ago, they called me up and said, Hey, we're ready to go again. So, uh, so nice that it was already set. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it was, uh, all, all, it was just a matter of taking the prints, putting them in my car, driving them down there, and uh, they hung them up, and it's done. It's always good when the gallery <coughs> does the hanging. You don't have to do it yourself. 
I I can't uh, I can't draw a straight line, so it wouldn't have been good. Paul, my understanding is you have a new book called The Moment of Truth, uh, and you're going to have an opening uh, also at the Logan Center. Can you tell us a bit about that? No, uh, that's that's actually been delayed because of the pandemic, also. Oh. So well, tell that's us about not, the book. That's not coming out till the beginning of the year next year. Uh, it's a collection of my photographs from. 45 years of taking pictures of musicians. A uh, few of my thoughts in there, but it's mostly just photographs. So Paul, um, which came first? Your love of shooting pictures or love of music? Um, actually music. Uh, I, was, uh, I was a music fan from the time I was a little kid. My mother only allowed uh, classical music in our house except for she would only listen to WFMT, which was all classical music, except for two and a half hours every Saturday night at 10.20. They had a show called The Midnight Special. Oh, the best. And, uh, and she would allow me to stay up late and listen to The Midnight Special. And it was mostly folk music, which I grew to love. Uh, Peter, Paul, and Mary, and uh, uh, Judy Collins and Tom Paxton and all those people. And then in the 60s, blues started creeping in yeah. to the programming. Uh, they, I think it was because Bob Dylan went electric at Newport and had Mike Bloomfield, one of the greatest blues guitar players on the planet playing guitar in his band. And then Muddy Waters recorded an album called Folk Singer and another album called Live at Newport. And all of a sudden, the Midnight Special was playing blues. And that was a lot more exciting to me than uh, folk music. Although I still love, still to this day, love folk music. And also, wasn't your dad uh, also a photographer for a Chicago Daily? No, he was a freelance photographer. He oh. was... Uh, he was a photographer before I was born. And he actually was one of the guys that started Ebony Magazine back in the day. Wow. Uh, little short Jewish guy as the photographer for Ebony Magazine. And he was their, their official photographer for the first two years of their existence until they decided that they needed a black photographer <laughs> to make it more legitimate. That's great. So, so then he became a freelance photographer. He worked for, uh, he was the official photographer of the Chicago Housing Authority in the 50s. Uh, he was the official photographer for Woolworth's department store. And he would photograph new products when they were, when they were brought into Chicago. Like he photographed the first TV ever in somebody's house <laughs> in the city of Chicago. Uh, and he continued doing assignments for Ebony. And uh, in 1975, well, first of all, when I was born, he quit photography because he, uh, my mother didn't like the fact that he was traveling all the time. <laughs> so he became a building contractor. And uh, he built houses on the North Shore. 
and room additions and remodeled houses. And I grew up knowing him as that. And then in That's the cool. 70s, the biz that business went basically to use a to use a description down the toilet. And he wasn't making any money as a builder. So he decided to take out all his old cameras and fix them up and he became a street photographer. And uh, he started taking pictures and one of his friends from the past was talking to him one day and said, hey, we, I work for this team called the Chicago Bulls <laughs> and we need a photographer. You think he'd be interested? So he went to a game and he came home that night. I was still, I was a bum living at home with, with my parents. <laughs> I was maybe 19, 20 years old. I was going to UIC, uh, basically trying to stay out of the draft. And uh, he came home and told me this story and it included three important points. Uh, point number one being free parking. Point number two being a free hot meal in the press box. And point number three being the best seats in the house. Paul, and, I, and that's how I became a photographer. I said, you yeah, got to take me to the game. That's great. I was, I did have a memory of your dad. I thought he was taking pictures at this 1967 March at the Coliseum with Dr. King. No, he never photographed Dr. King. Okay, I had that story wrong, but let me go no. on and ask you a couple other questions. Like, what kind of influences have you, uh, uh, you know, accumulated over the years in terms of other photographers? Who do you like? Be there Chicago photographers, blues photographers, <coughs> just photographers in general? Well, there's uh, anybody that knows the history of photography knows about Henri Cartier-Bresson, who coined the phrase, the decisive moment, which to me is the most important moment in photography. It's the only thing that matters. In other words, his theory was that in any event, there's only one moment that matters. And as a photographer, you have to be able to capture that moment. And uh, that was, uh, that's been my guiding light throughout my career. Uh, and then music wise, there's a guy named Jim Marshall, who was the greatest music photographer that ever walked the face of the earth. And uh, he's the guy that took the famous picture of Johnny Cash giving him the finger <laughs> that you've probably seen. And among many others, and uh, he was he was my role model. And in uh, early 90s, I got to meet him. He came to Chicago and called me up and said, Hey, you know, let's, let's have lunch. And he uh, basically yelled at me and told me what I was doing wrong, and told me what I was doing right. And he changed my whole life. And he made me uh, a better businessman. Wow. And uh, and he told me that when he died, I was going to take his place. Wow, again. Which, which I don't really believe, but, you know, it sounded good at the time. You know, he, he passed away about five years ago. Well, Paul, when I was, uh, go ahead, Katie, I'm sorry. 
Uh, no, I, it just this, you know, Michael is a photographer, my partner up there on, you know, in this spread. And You're we also up, have, down. all right. And uh, we also have good friends in Lauren Deutsch and Chuck Journey, who are also local photographers uh, who have done both sports and musicians. Lauren does mostly jazz mus musicians. When they ask Lauren who taught her photography. Yeah, are you that? that guy <laughs> well i helped her out when she was a little kid well i, I was gonna say we've had you on before we've had these friends of ours on so well, we've had lauren on when she was with the jazz institute oh that's right yeah. that's right and chuck, chuck and i have ask... been friends for a long time too okay uh, you know paul when i was getting ready for this interview i i was uh, thinking about blues photographers and i of course mark paul kempner came up uh and so did i don't know if i can pronounce it rayburn Fleurlage, Fleurlage, um, and then there's uh, Lee Freelander, and then I, my other favorites were like Danny Lyon, Vivian Mayer, uh, Robert Frank, Dorothy Lang, Gordon Parks, and I could go on. But uh, any of those strike a chord with you? Uh, most of those people were really great photographers. Uh, I'm not a big Vivian Meyer fan. I uh, I was involved in the whole process of disseminating her photographs when they came to the forefront and I used to the way I used to describe Vivian Meyer I used to describe my father as uh Vivian Meyer if Vivian Meyer had actual talent <laughs> well, my, I gotta, father, I my gotta... father was was a thousand times better photographer than Vivian Meyer I got to say, I did. Uh, I took my class to the historical museum the other day, and after the class was over, we went. I went upstairs to her color exhibit, and you know, I'm not a real uh, critical dude, so I did enjoy taking in her color shots, but couldn't bring myself to spend eighty bucks for the book. Right, right, exactly, <laughs> exactly. Let me ask you. Uh, do you uh, did you start out with film? Do you still shoot film? You shoot digital? I uh, started out with film because that's all there was. I started out in 1975. I, uh, I started out by borrowing my father's equipment and borrowing his darkroom. And I would go out and shoot. I would come home and develop the film down in the basement, make prints, uh, do all that. I used to work at a photo lab called Gamma Photo. And I was able to get all my film process for nothing, all my color film process for nothing, because I worked there and I would just slip it to the guy in the processing department and get it an hour later. You're gonna uh, get a bill, if you're, not, you're not careful. <laughs> no, different owners, different <laughs> owners. Uh, so I was 100% I was film until digital came out and I realized that I had to change to stay alive hmm. because everybody wanted everybody wanted everything immediately if not sooner right like for example uh, i shot a concert last night i got home at nine o'clock at night and getty images already has my photos and the artists and the publicist already have my photos yeah, no, it's a lot easier. I got to say, although well, it's easier and it's also cheaper yeah. for a freelance person in the long run. You do have a lot of younger people these days kind of uh, 
taking a liking to film again. So I got my Nikon fixed, which still needs a little more work, but um, I keep thinking I'm going to shoot a little film every now and then. Aren't, aren't they aren't they stopping production of actual film for these no, cameras? Still, you can still buy film, but okay. I my feeling is uh, when digital started out, it was nowhere near as good as film. And now digital is better than film in most situations. Yeah. And there's really no reason to shoot film ever because <laughs> for anybody to use it for any purpose that photography would be used for these days, it has to be digitized at some point. Yeah, yeah. So why not just skip the middle step and go right to the, what the end source is gonna be? So you mentioned, I, you mentioned you shot a concert just last night. And what I'm wondering is, um, what we were both wondering is, um, have you uh, taken on the, the younger blues men and women uh, uh, that, to shoot? Um, who were you shooting last night, for example? Well, last night was a rock and roll, Canadian rock and roll woman that was the opening act at the Metro. And that was fun, but it also was kind of scary to be 70 years old and walking around in the middle of a pandemic with half the people in the audience not wearing masks. Although everybody, you couldn't get in the building unless you had a vaccine card. Yeah. Uh, but it was still kind of weird. But when you talk about the younger people in the blues, uh, I, don't, I don't think there are that many. Uh, that's the, one of the problems. There's a concert tonight at the Logan Center Blues Festival that's, uh, uh, it's the daughters and sons of right. the, the famous blues artists. And when you look at, if you look at it, it looks like this is really great, it's another generation. But then if you were to ask them to see their driver's licenses, they're <laughs> all in their 40s and 50s. <laughs> and they're the younger generation. And that's not a, it's not a real problem for me. I mean, I think it's great, but where, I don't think there are very many 20 year olds that are out there playing blues. There's only a couple that I can name right now. Yeah. There's actually somebody playing Sunday night at the Logan Center. That's to me, the most fabulous artist in the city of Chicago right now. Uh, I call her uh, Chicago's 21st century Angela Davis. Her name is Melody Angel. And she's born on the south side of Chicago. She's got a giant afro. She's a Black Lives Matter activist, a, a brilliant songwriter who writes about what's going on in the world today. Great singer and a great guitar player. And she's a good friend and I photographed her a bunch of times. Uh, but that's for young people, that's pretty much it. Michael, we can't hear you. Michael, we oh, can't hear you. Ask, <laughs> there we go. Uh, let me ask you, uh, you take a lot of blues pictures. You've also taken, you know, shots of, uh, Miles Davis and Tina Turner, um, uh, do you shoot pictures other than music? Do you carry a camera with you? Uh, do you do any street photography? What, uh, what kind of pulls the trigger on you? I know you're looking for that, the precise moment. Uh, decisive, decisive moment. Decisive moment. So what engages you and makes you jump into action? 
Um, anybody that's standing on stage singing or playing a guitar. Uh, I, my father told me that I wasn't a real photographer unless I carried a camera with me everywhere I went. And my goal in life became to walk out of the house without a camera. Yeah, but you had one in your car. No, never, <laughs> never. Because I'm very uh, business motivated. And if I were driving down the street and saw a fire and got out and started taking pictures of firemen climbing up on ladders, then I would have to figure out where am I gonna sell this? <laughs> And, you know, if it's a big enough fire, the Sun-Times and the Tribune are going to be there anyway. So what chance do I have of ever making any money off of this? Well, well right. right I hope there, you're making some dough. <laughs> right there distinguishes you from Michael's habits. Michael always stops for pictures and he never sells 90% of them. They're just stacked up in his phone. Well, um, yeah, that's, I, I don't, I, I spend too much time like archiving the photos that I have already to, to have photos. Like I was at the Hyde Park Jazz Festival a couple weeks ago and somebody had hung a guitar from a branch of a tree and it just looked kind of cool. So I took a couple pictures of it and I got home and thought, why did I do that? Why did <laughs> I, it didn't cost me anything. It was digital, but what am I going to do with these pictures? And I, labeled it guitar and tree and i put it in my miscellaneous file and it'll never be seen or heard from again well well you're, you're Paul, lucky we, that way i still think that uh my photos are going to get discovered um anyhow well we want to thank you for coming on the show today we're okay. we're we have to go to our next guest because uh we've had we a, only got so much time yeah no really uh enjoy the um your show which is going to be up at the uh, logan uh, the cafe associated with the logan center through i think the early december i think it's december 8th okay so i had somewhere around 10th, around that time i think it's december 10th actually according okay. to the see so i said but, around uh, that time and congratulations to your book coming out so we can grab a copy of it yeah that's coming out january or february great well, congratulations all right. on all of the above. And thanks so much for joining us for this short time today. No problem. Right Appreciate on, brother. It. Adios. Right. Bye. Bye. I was listening to the voices of life, chanting in unison, carry on the struggle. The generations surge together in resistance to meet the reality of power. Mother Earth embraces her children and natural beauty to last beyond oppressor's brutality. As the butterfly floats into life, we are the spirit of natural life, which is forever. The power of understanding real connections to spirit is meaning our resistance our struggle is not sacrifice lost it is natural energy properly used one time i was visiting with my relatives the clouds 
the mountains, the sky, the trees. My relatives touched my spirit, nudged it lovingly. Listen to us, impatient one. We are forever. You must remember the gentleness of time. You are struggling to be who you are. You say you want to learn the old ways. I'll never forget the time that John Trudell played at the Heartland. A uh, couple of times. Yep. Um, so we're so happy to uh, welcome back to the show our, our friend and uh, someone we're really proud of, um, Pat <laughs> Handlin, who has uh, been on the job with the water protectors, is part of the Water Protector Legal Collective. Is that the right way to that say it? That is correct. Yes, it is. Pat, thank you so much for joining us. Um, and how oh, are you? It's my pleasure. I'm good. I'm good. How are you? Uh, we're hanging in there. It's an Yay. interesting time to be alive in America and <laughs> on the planet. And uh, we're trying to make the best of it. Probably so better we... than in 50 years, right? <laughs> At this point. I hope. I, yeah. When we last had you on, it was yes. during or just after the Standing Rock um, event in North Dakota. Um, was that your first experience with water protectors? And maybe remind us of what it meant for you personally and how it has affected the trajectory of your legal work since? Yeah, it was <clears throat> It was my first experience. My friend Kathy and I like read about it and looked at each other and said, let's go. So we did. We went to the camp and Ocheri Shakowin and um, volunteered in the legal tent which was a, a great experience. And then, at, so, you know, for me, that propelled me to continue and to be involved in the representation of over 800 water protectors charged with misdemeanors in North Dakota during the protests from like February, 2017. And we, along with other <clears throat> lawyers from around the country, a lot from the National Lawyers Guild, a lot of indigenous lawyers were involved um, as well as Lawyers Guild lawyers. And we, you know, we were all really actually very successful in fighting against those charges. And we won a lot, we won a really huge number of them either in motions to dismiss or at trial. Pat, let, yeah. me ask, let me ask you a little yeah. bit about uh, dirty oil or tar sands, and what what gives yeah. the definition? Because uh, Enbridge is already sending uh, dirty oil or tar sands through the pipelines from Alberta, Canada, all the way to Wisconsin mm -hmm. and the Great Lakes shores. Uh, yes, and they're building Line Three. They're threatening uh, all kind of areas. Fill us in on not only the uh, the terms, the definition, and what Enbridge is up to. Sure. Um, Great. That's, it's really important for us, especially here in Chicago, and to know what they're doing. They've, they were, are the company, they've been um, running tar sands oil through their pipes for over 50 years. <clears throat> they're the, they're a, the company that, one of the companies that started the uh, mining the tar sands oil and it's the dirtiest oil on the planet. It's, it's absolutely filthy oil. And if they succeed in completing and running oil through line three, it will result in 
I have I have to look at my notes for the numbers. Um, what emissions equal to 50 coal plants or 193 million tons of CO2 per year. They'll have 760 plus barrels per day. Um, and it all it runs through an area that is sacred to the Anishinaabe people who are the Ojibwe and the Chippewa in Minnesota and also the Lakota in North Dakota and other places um, because it runs through land um, where manumen grows, which is wild rice. It's a, it's a grain native to North America and it's central to the spiritual, physical, economic, cultural life of the tribes there. And it's, it used to be in all of Minnesota, now it's only in the Northern half. And so where the pipeline grow, goes and use of water for the pipeline and the potential for spills could have just de devastating impact on um, the wild rice. So, um, and Enbridge has a terrible history of spills. Um, that's what I was just gonna ask you. I mean, Enbridge yeah. has, uh, in your article, there have been 194 incidents, accidents right. since the year 2000, um, yeah. just Enbridge alone. And I'm right. wondering how is the US still allowing permits for a company with such a dismal record on spills and cleanups after that that's the question isn't it i mean i i that's the same question we're all asking how could the yeah. army corps of engineers and the minnesota department of natural resources and public utilities commission allow a company like this to continue to function um they actually since 2000 so there's a website called fimsa pipeline and hazardous safety materials administration which is part of the Department of Transportation. It's a federal agency that monitors spills. So these statistics are from that federal agency's records. And um, so since 2000, they've Enbridge in, the, in five states only have spilled two and a half million gallons of, of oil from their pipelines. And of that, those spills, they haven't 550,000 gallons have never been cleaned up. They couldn't, they, you know, they're required to clean it up. They, they were unable. Is to it clean because, it up. is it because it's that uh, dill bit you talked yes, about? Yes, yes, it's diluted bitumen. It's so the tar sands oil come from Alberta. It's really sticky, dirty oil. So they mix it with naphtha or like a gasoline type substance to dilute it so it can get through the pipeline. I know, which makes it much more toxic than it already is. Toxic for people who are have to clean it up. Yeah. As well as the environment, you know, the birds, the insects, the wild rice, you know, the manumen. Mm -hmm. So the water. And um, so line three goes to the shores of Lake Superior. And um, you know, lakes uh, the Great Lakes flow into each other. Lake Superior flows into Lake Michigan. And um, so the, anyway, but since 1986, which was as far back as I could search on the FIMSA website, the federal website, they've spilled 7.4 million gallons in the five, in Indiana, Illinois, Michigan, Wisconsin, and Minnesota. So their record is even worse than, 
you know, you could even imagine. Um, it is, and, it is hard to, it's hard to hear that those figures much less hard to um, imagine. What does that mean for the environment? Uh, so right. can I ask um, yeah. again, or what do the pro the current protests over line three, how do they compare with the movement that ultimately won at Standing Rock with the rescinding of the Keystone permit? Um, well, well, let me just ask actually, you that. Standing Rock was Dakota Access Pipeline. Right. Keystone was, oh. um, yeah. Yes, thank it's you. A, was a different pipeline that, was, that protests were successful in stopping. Um, and it also is the same oil that is to flow through line three. Right. It's from Alberta, Canada. And it's Enbridge is a Canadian company. So there, so there people are in going up to Minnesota. It's in a very, it's really far, you know, it's like a, an 11 hour trip from Chicago um, to get there. There are a number of different tribes there reservations there are camps different camps people are so it's it's different from standing rock because it's a little more dispersed right but 900 people have been arrested so far more than were arrested at standing rock and um people are going up there they're like trying to stop the construction people have spent the summer you know chaining themselves to land moving equipment you know, blockading, you know, like where the construction is occurring and just trying to stop it physically with their bodies. Um, and unfortunately it's not getting as much um, publicity Press. as, yeah, which it, it should get more, especially around us, but it's unfortunate that it's not getting more. Do you think that they're hoping that the, um another winter under the shadow of COVID might weaken the presence and uh, effects of protesters or the water protectors? Oh, sure. And, you know, those pipeline companies like, like um, DAPL, like Energy Transfer Partners who built DAPL, they, they try really hard to rush construction so they can oh. get it done and get the oil flowing Perfect. You know, as soon as possible. <laughs> so yeah, that's what they're, yeah. And, um, it's really uh, not something that will bode well for the future. Certainly inconsistent with trying to divest from fossil fuels. Enbridge is not an American company, it's a Canadian company. And um, it's really a shame that instead of putting their money into wind and solar, um, they're putting it into fossil fuels, which uh, we let need me to ask, do. Let me ask you a little bit more about Enbridge. I think it was in Vice Magazine. I saw that Enbridge has spent $2 million to defend its pipeline from protesters. Uh, they've right. been given money funding the police who have violently, right. responded, violently responded to protests around its line three. That's true. So what's happened is Enbridge has paid money to Minnesota, actually, um, Energy Transfer Partners did that too in North Dakota, but after the fact. But now they're paying law enforcement to arrest people, basically. They're paying for equipment, they're paying for their time. And, um, and just like in North Dakota, they're, they're really um, 
I would, they're not embedded with them, but they might as well be, you know, they're very, they're very um, tied to law enforcement up there. They've insinuated themselves into local law enforcement. There's, there's small towns up there, small counties, not highly populated. And um, so the fact that they're doing that is being challenged in court because it doesn't seem right um, to me, but um, yeah, that, that is correct. They are paying law enforcement to protect their pipelines um, okay, and to stop uh, the, the protests. Well, Hammond, I, I, go ahead. Let me yeah. ask you about uh, the Biden administration memorandum that you talk about in your article, the memorandum of January 21st. Can you <laughs> tell us what that is and what it means? Well, Biden said he would um, he would honor the treaties. He would um, respect the tribes. He would try to engage with the tribes in matters of import to the tribes and the nation. I mean, tri the tribes are nations. You know, what it really is, is nation to nation relationships. Um, so um, the, you know, the tribes, for example, in Minnesota, it's the same oil that would have, that would have flown, flowed through KXL pipeline in the Dakotas, but um, Biden stopped that, but he hasn't stopped this even though he's promised, you know, and there are treaties that should, he should use, he should honor um, that grant to the Anishinaabe people, the Chippewa and the Ojibwe in Minnesota, the right that from the 1850s, the right to harvest Minuman, the wild rice. And, um, that, and that's in ceded territory, territory that was by the treaties granted to the colonizers, which I mean is what they are, we yeah. are, and um, but the, um, those treaties are not being honored, and so Biden is not honoring. He's he's not putting his money where his mouth is. Oops, sorry, that's our cat. Um, <laughs> we love it when animals like enter. Um, <laughs> Every time I'm on a Zoom, she comes. I'm going to go back to uh, a question that I I sort of started, but um, you just made me want to go back to it. How did dealing with notions like inherent sovereignty and the nation to nation treaty procedures that you just referred to, how did doing work in that realm change your legal expertise? I mean, have you had to enter a whole new field in the last few years because of this? A absolutely. I, I, have I, learned, I have learned so much. Um, I don't even, I mean, and it's great. I love it. I love learning you know, this law. Um, I mean, really treaties are second only to the constitution in terms of um, status of law in this country. Mm -hmm. So um, yeah, I've learned, I've learned some environmental law. I'm by no means an expert. What I've done more than anything other than learn is um, I've done, I've, I've tried to represent water protectors who are on the front lines and charge. So I've done, I've, kind of focused on misdemeanors, which I used to do early in my career because I was a, originally a public defender in Cook County. But um, yeah, so I have learned a great deal. Um, and I recommend it. I've also learned a lot of history. I knew some, but I really, it's really important for all of us to learn the history of, um, of the US in relation to um, 
our relations with indigenous peoples on, on this continent, which is really a history of atrocity. And if there's something you recommend people read, uh, those of us who are not legal eagles or whatever, um, please lay it on us. Yes. But, go ahead. The Indigenous People's History of the United States by uh, yeah. Roxanne Dunbar Ortiz. We actually had her on this show when that. Oh, did you? Yeah. yeah, we did. And, and um, anything by Nick Estes. Yeah. Okay. He's, he's, he's quite a thinker. We remain most concerned um, about these pipelines running under the Great Lakes, quite frankly. Yes. Um, and it's all the more reason why it's, it's, it's completely, um, it's incomprehensible to me that, yes. the, that the Army Corps of Engineers and the US government does not understand that we are supposed to be taking care of 20% of the world's fresh water supply. And they, you know, plus, you know, the recent example out in California of a ship anchor tearing a hole in the pipeline that it consequently fouled coastal waters, including the great, you know, surfing beach, um, Huntington uh, or whatever they call it. I mean, yeah. it shows how easily that can happen. And it almost happened be... in Lake Michigan. It, right. I mean, exactly. It did happen, actually, but the pipe didn't burst. Right. And that was Enbridge too. Line right. five is an Enbridge pipeline. And the governor of Michigan has ordered them to shut that pipeline down and they refused. They don't respect the governor of Michigan. So, um, so they're Trumpites that's being litigated. Well. well, they're Canadians. They're not the nice ones though. <laughs> yeah, evidently. But yeah, yeah, I'm sure they would vote for Trump if they could. Uh, Pat, do you want to try to connect uh, the water, the struggle over water rights uh, to other issues that affect Native communities? I'm thinking of a report I read about a, an attempt uh, by tribes to block a, uh, a mine that's yes. about making car batteries. And the courts have just continually rebuffed them, overruling treaties, you know, rights, uh, sacred ground. Any, any comment on that sort of thing? Yeah, absolutely. There are there are 574 federally recognized tribes in the United States, and there are, there are other tribal communities who aren't federally recognized. I mean, federal recognition doesn't mean you're not a tribe, but of though, I mean, there are so many problems that have occurred with tribal nations fighting against extractive industries, uranium mining, mining of all kinds, you know, uranium. Um, I think you're probably talking about lithium, maybe. Right. Yeah. <clears throat> um, but yeah, it's a, it's a constant struggle, and there is a lot of law, and there is actually the United Nations Declaration of the oh, here she comes rights of indigenous peoples um, requires uh, the government to do what's called um, free, prior, and informed consent, not just consultation, right? But actually, not checking off a box, but free prior and informed consent before they allow um, for agreement for, you know, before tribal lands are used for any kind of mining or, um, and, and tribes also are continually having to fight to protect their water. Yeah. So yeah. Um, first uh, you get to introduce your feline roommate. And, oh, and lastly, who, who? <laughs> Ella. 
Oh, Ella. Actually, right. we named her Eleanor Roosevelt originally, <laughs> but we call her Ella. I don't, I'm not sure that's the right name for this cat, but anyway. Well, play, play her a lot of Ella Fitzgerald. See if she was Yeah, honest. exactly. Yeah. Um, tell us finally, Pat, thank you. First yeah. of all, thank you so much for returning to talk about this so important issue and we'll keep calling you back. Um, okay. Can we just ask in, in ultimately what, what keeps you engaged and committed to work serving the people in the way that you do? Oh, wow. Well, the people, of course. I mean, I, um, and you know, the land and the water, I, but mostly the people, of course, that the, the people I've met and represented and work with are just spectacular human beings. That's a beautiful answer. It's true. That's a beautiful answer. And Michael, you're, I don't know why, but you're muted again. I don't um, know who's doing that to me, but I said, <laughs> that's good. <Pat. laughs> Thanks so much, Pat. And uh, we will Thank call you, you back. For, uh, for those okay. of you watching, we actually had another guest scheduled to appear with Pat. And so the reason we're saying we'll have her back again, because that person was uh, a tribal member who's timing right. out in the mountain time zone yeah. didn't work with ours today, but we'll be, right. we'll keep an eye on this and because uh, okay. we must. Good. Yes, absolutely. Water is life. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for doing this subject on your right wonderful on, show. You too. Thank, thank Adios. you. Okay, to finish out our show for today, uh, we still are uh, things for people to do. There are still a uh, call for volunteers to do after school um, accompaniment of students at the Gale Academy here in the 49th Ward. I think there's also some need and some jobs available for actual school crossing guards around the city um, for those open to that. Uh, and just so you know, that whole Christmas presents won't get there on time because of the uh, supply chain problems. It's, it's a Republican meme in origins, just so you know. And if you need proof, Christmas was mentioned 106 times on Fox News in one 24 hour period just this week. So it's, it's gonna be a key thing for them. And Trump loyalists are, are focusing on it because they say it didn't happen under his regime. And in fact, Christmas presents were late last year, lots of them. So before he was left office. Anyway. Okay, on the sports front, we want to thank the White Sox for a wonderful season. And we're sorry they didn't go a little bit further. And we are rooting for the Sky, who are 1-1 uh, against Phoenix. They play uh, tonight, which is Friday, the day we record. But Saturday is when we present it to you all. Uh, but they played a great game. I think they should have won it. They lost it overtime. 
we say go to Candace Parker, Ali Quigley, and all the rest of the team. We're rooting for you. And in memoriam, Katie, tell us what happened. Well, uh, a former guest and a longtime friend and fellow activist has been honored since his passing this week, and that is the uh, professor, Dr. Timuel Black, a wonderful, wonderful example for all of us to follow, a man who never stopped caring about his community and his city and giving endlessly to both. Uh, I want to wish Zenobia, my girlfriend, uh, peace in his transition. Let me say my, my favorite memory of Tim was when I, uh, uh, along with my adopted brother, toured the south side with him, me with a camera while driving, and him telling us stories about where Joe Lewis walked, where he lived uh, after he won a fight at the amphitheater. Uh, it was a wonderful time, and I'm looking for that video. <laughs> okay, and another passing this week was Patty Maloney, founder of The Chieftains, who also did a lot of good work with many musicians on social issues. Um, just want to say thank you for your work. And then I think we're gonna go out with our normal Twin Peaks, our world for over 25 years. We've brought you live from the Heartland now called Heartland at Home. We broadcast every Saturday morning, 9 a.m. Central on Chicago's WLUW 88.7 FM. Also streaming live from WLUW.org and archived on our channel at youtube.com slash Heartland Media. We are also now on Spotify and Google Podcasts type in live from the heartland. And every once in a while, we're cable cast on Can TV, channel 27. We wanna thank our team, which includes Luis Mejia Ahrens down in Veracruz and Lynn Orman Weiss right over here in Skokie. Thanks you guys, we love you. And we ask everyone to do good in the world. Because the world needs all the good that we do. All power. All power to the people. To the people. Hey